My name is Monica A. Coleman, and I want to share with you a bit about my own evolution in thinking about sexuality in relationship to my faith, in particular, in relationship to my theology, and how um, I've come both intellectually and, of course, a little bit personally to where I am now. Like many other people, I grew up with this idea and the teaching in my home church was don't do it until you're married because God said so. And like most young people, I began to think about, well, what do you mean by it? And I don't even think I cared so much about where did God say so, but I definitely was like, well, what do you mean by it? And what was meant by it was you know, procreative, heterosexual, sexual relations, right? Vaginal, penal sex that could create a baby because that was the only way we would know, really, if you had done it. And so like many other young people, I was like, well, what are the things I can do that are not it? And then that's not really sex. So sex was very much about what it took to procreate, what it took between a man and a woman to procreate um, without any other thoughts about scientific intervention in terms of procreation or in terms of where babies come from, so to say, and without any other conversation about any other kinds of sexual activity or about sexuality in general, and definitely no conversations about um, gender, aside, aside from the gender that you were assigned at your birth, which was assumed that was the gender that you took on. And I didn't think much harder about it other than, okay, if there's a rule, where are the loopholes, right? And the, of course, the idea, I think, as time I was raised was also very much about no teenage pregnancies. Teenage pregnancies were seen as this bad thing, things that weren't supposed to happen, but of course still did happen. Um, because the idea is that teenagers weren't ready to have children. They weren't financially ready. They weren't emotionally ready. They weren't psychologically ready. And it was like spiritually a bad thing. Um, premarital sex was understood to be a sin and a sin that was somehow worse than other sins like lying or cheating or gossiping, which was definitely seen as a sin. And so I kind of grew up with a hierarchy of sins, right? <laughs> that some sins are worse than others, the ones we can see, the ones that seem socially corrupt or immoral, right? The ones that would kind of destroy one's future or one's dreams or even a kind of public sense of status quo and sexual sins which in the case of which i thought about growing up premarital sex remember only the kind that procreates in heterosexual couplings was seen as something that you shouldn't do because god said so as i got a little older i was like well where does god say so and why does god say so now, why had I not asked that initially? I think because I grew up with a very social justice understanding of faith. I grew up in Black Baptist and Black AME churches. And of course, we talked about Jesus and we had high holy days like Christmas and Easter. But we also talked a lot about community justice. And we also talked a lot about race. And we talked a lot about 
what it means to, in one's church, right, be active also in one's community to help other people who were, who needed help. All of that was seen as part of acts of faith. So my understanding about what faith does was that a lot of faith was, this is what we believe, but it was also very much about this is how we act in the world. And this is how we help to make the world a better place. And this is how we are kind to other people. And this is how we support um you know, young people or children um, or the elderly. And that was very much my sense of faith, much more than a confession of faith or that I believed certain things about Jesus and saying I believe those certain things therefore made me a Christian or a person of faith. I did not come to that until much later, right? I didn't come to, a, even though I grew up in a faith tradition, where you would declare salvation, like, oh, now I believe this, now I would be saved. Um, you would be christened or baptized at birth. And because I grew up in a religious family, I didn't think of religion as something I chose until I was in my late teens. It was very much something that I just was. It was what I inherited. I didn't, of course, I knew there were people of other religions, <laughs> but I didn't think of it as something that I was going to choose to do or not to do, choose to believe or not believe. It just kind of was. And as I got older, I then was exposed to another way of thinking about God. And that way of thinking about God used a different language that I grew up with, and it used the language of having a personal relationship with God. And that was when I encountered more evangelical circles, because what I grew up in was not what I would call evangelical. And it talked about, well, you have a personal relationship with God, and you want to cultivate that relationship with God, just like you would cultivate other relationships. And you would spend time with God, and you would learn God's voice by spending time in God's word, by which was meant the Bible, and generally a Protestant Bible. And you would have retreats, and you would have small groups, and you would spend time in individual Bible study, and thinking about your own personal spiritual life. And that was when I learned language like having a walk with God and having a journey with God. This was not language I grew up in, and I very much enjoyed learning to think about God as someone with whom I had a relationship and I cultivated a relationship and who had a relationship with me. And in that framework, sexuality and sexual activity, I guess I would say, was framed as something you didn't do because it would hurt your relationship with God and something that one probably wasn't ready for, that was such a deep form of bonding and such a deep form of commitment, that it should only be done within marriage because that's the structure that could handle the depth of what sexual activity would do, that sexual activity was about forming very deep, personal, loving, um, bodily uh, com connections, and that that was best done and should only be done within a framework of marriage because there was that level of commitment and support and kind of God approval, right, that made that the right format, right? And of course, we're still talking about heterosexual couplings in this particular context. Was that how I thought about sex? I don't think that was how I thought about sexual activity. I thought about a I did think of sexual activity as something that created connections and between 
the people who one was having sex with. That was something that was intimate because bodies were involved and nakedness would be involved. Um, and sometimes emotional vulnerability would be involved. Um, but I think I thought more about relationships. Like what kind of relationships do I want to have with people? What kind of intimacies do I want to nurture with other people, with my friendships or my more romantic relationships? Did I want to have a kind of intellectual intimacy, a kind of emotional intimacy, a spiritual intimacy? Did I want to share faith and faith journeys and faith struggles with the person with whom I was intimate? And did I also then want to share sexual intimacies? And I thought of sexual intimacy being something that was easier to develop than these other kind of intimacies. And because of that, I should wait on the sexual intimacy and try to develop those other intimacies first to make sure I really knew somebody who I would choose to be in relationship with. And I still had in the back of my mind, right, what I had grown up with, which was not just don't do it until you're married, but you don't want to accidentally or have an unplanned pregnancy because that would alter the course of my plans or my dreams or my career. And so not having sex, if I chose not to have sex, was just as much about um, what would what was going to make smooth or not make smooth my personal career path at a relatively young age, or would it alter it? Would I have to go here? Would I have to do that? Would I have to make decisions I didn't want to make? And I was very much a pro-choice person, so I felt, I felt, and I still do feel that people had could make whatever decisions they wanted to make around choosing to become pregnant or stay pregnant. Um, but I felt like it's a difficult decision, and I wasn't sure that I wanted to have to be in a position to make that decision if I had the emotional or spiritual um, wherewithal or capacity to make what seemed to me to be a difficult decision. So maybe I don't even want to even have to be in a position where I might have to make that decision. These are the kinds of things that I was thinking about. And then I got a little bit older and I said, do I still want to maintain the same thoughts? Because my theology had changed, but I hadn't sat down to think about, does that also mean what I think about sexuality changes? And it turns out indeed it did. Because when I had this idea about my relationship to God being about having a personal relationship to God, in that framework, it meant that sin, whatever sin was, right, was something that would separate me from God and that would create a, a gap or a boundary between me and God. And if you care about a relationship, you don't want there to be a gap. You don't want there to be a problem in your relationship. So I wouldn't want to do something that would hurt me or hurt somebody else, but I didn't want to do something that would hurt God. And I felt that if I sinned in whatever kind of sin that was, but especially a sexual sin, because we know those are worse than other sins, then that would be me hurting my relationship with God. And if my relationship with God was important to me, then I wouldn't knowingly, willingly, choosingly, is that a word? Do something that would hurt my relationship with God. And that was a framework I had for thinking about my own sexual activity and even what I might have taught to younger people when I was teaching young adult Sunday school um, about how we would think about sexual activity. Now, I did think 
sexual activity is not just right this procreative act and it's not just between a heterosexual coupling i did as i got older have a much broader understanding as i might have when i was younger but not just about loopholes that there are a range of sexual activities outside of that which would be procreated that sex i never thought that sex was intended only for procreation that clearly sex was also intended and created pleasure and that knowing as someone who's worked in a field around uh, sexual and domestic violence that there's also power dynamics that can be involved in sexual encounters and sexual relationships so it's not just oh we're only having sex to have children or maybe to avoid children because it's about pleasure but that sex is complicated and that there are at least complex and that there are many things you might say on a range of sexual activity um outside of <laughs> just a procreative act between heterosexual couples that you could have sex between more than two people that even masturbation is a kind of sexual activity which only requires one person or could be one person and then another instrument that there would be could be sexuality between people of the same gender between more than two people and did i really think that god only approved of the kind of sex that happens between you know, a, a man identified person, a woman identified person who are married to each other. And I was like, hmm, that, that doesn't seem to jive with the rest of what I think about God. So I think what I need to share is really who do I think God is? What do I think God is about? And that really affected what I think and still does about sexuality. Did I think that God was a rule maker? Right, which is kind of what I got as a child. And this person who sets up laws and commandments and rules, and we either keep them or we break them. <laughs> and we shouldn't break them, at least we shouldn't be caught breaking them. We shouldn't be seen by society, society just being my local community, as breaking them because then your life would go another way. And that's not what God wants for your life. Is that how I, I saw God, right? That That's an image of God. That is a theology about who God is in relationship to humanity. Or did I think of God as someone with whom a bit more imminent, someone with whom I had a more personal relationship and that I had to nurture this relationship and that things could be sustained or not be sustained. Things could go well in the relationship or things could not go well in this relationship. And it was a relationship that needed constant nurturing. And yet it was all still a bit of me trying to please God, right? There's still a kind of worship. God is not my peer, right, in that relationship. And so it still had these elements of a law-breaking God because I thought if I do something, if I sin, if I do this particular kind of sin, it would hurt this relationship that means so much. So it still had elements of respect and I was learning more and more about what it means to be in relationship with others. But I was like, is this who I think God is? So I wanna talk a bit more about who I think God is and who I think God is and how I think God relates to the world is deeply grounded in my belief and my identity as process theologian and um as a process theologian i believe everything that happens in the world is a product of three things what we have to work with what's possible in our context and what we do with it and as a process theist i believe that 
what is possible in our context, that comes from God. That God is one who offers us new possibilities in every single moment. And sometimes that feels like a lure. Sometimes that feels like a calling. Sometimes that feels like love. Sometimes that feels like grace. And I think all of those are really great ways for describing how God interacts with humanity. And not just humanity, but actually everything, right? That God is actually a part of all of us, right? And that we always have what's happening in the world and our past to work with, which can be an incredibly powerful influence. And we also have God, right? And we have God who might say, hey, what's in the past is great. Keep doing that. And we may also have God saying, hey, there's some newness I want you to experience, something new, something that feels exciting, something that feels miraculous, something that would be loving and good, right? Try that. That might be something that doesn't come solely from your past. And that we have this choice. We have this agency. We always can say, yes, God, I, I'm, I'm going to try and hear your voice and follow your voice. Or no, thank you. I'd rather not. <laughs> right. Or I'm going to, you know, or I, I might go a different way. But there's always a sense of choice. There's always a sense of there's never a sense of coercion in our relationship with God that we can choose, that we always have a sense of agency, even if it's not as much agency as we wish it were, as we like it to be, even as it should be. There's always some measure of agency. And in process, we believe this is just as true for quarks and rocks as it is for people. But people are a little bit more interesting to other people. So I'll talk about it in the context of being a person and being around other people. So that's one thing that process teaches me, right? And because I also be we believe this, that when God calls us and when God speaks to us and when God is luring us and loving us and offering grace to us, it's not just this kind of external God coming at us and saying, hey, I'm trying to get your attention, knock, knock, but actually God becoming a part of us. And so another big principle of process theology is this radical sense of incarnation, that God is in all of us, right? The rock, the tree, the squirrel, your pets, um, the created world, everybody every single person deep within each of our cells, each of our processes, all of us, right? So when we, and we wouldn't talk about the incarnation where it only happens with Jesus in Christ, but rather God always incarnates us. God is always a part of us. So that's another really big principle of process theology. And the other thing is that as this whole process happens, right, where what happens in the world is a product of our past, what we have to work with, what's possible in our context, and um, where we might be going, right? And the, um, what we can do with it, our own agency, our own hope for our future, our own appetition for the future, right? That as soon as we make a decision, as soon as we become something, we then become part of the next moment's world, right? And we become part of someone else's past as they're deciding what they're going to do. And so because of that, we're always interrelated. In process, there's not you know, a person who is an island unto themselves, where you're just kind of by yourself, but rather everything we do always affects others. What we do affects God and who God is and what God has to work with. And what we do affects other people and other entities in the world, right? It affects the air we breathe. We've become so conscious of this lately. It affects the earth we walk upon. It affects other people around us. It can even affect us in ways we don't even know. Right. So I think of the story of like the butterfly effect, right, of this butterfly that flaps its wings in Japan and that 
creates a different kind of weather and pattern in North America, right? That we know that we live in a global society that is interconnected. Now, this is not new, but we are more and more conscious of this than we even used to be, right? And than we were in the past. And so the sense that we're always connected to each other, that it's not like there's something that I can do that doesn't affect other people. Sometimes we're more aware of it than other times, right? We're aware that what we're doing affects our families or the people we work with or our local community. But there are all types of ways in which the things we do affect others that we aren't always aware of. Um, so, of course, we try to be conscious of the ways in which um, what we're doing affects others. And we know that what other people do affects us. Right? We're affected by individual acts, individual decisions that other people make that affect us and that we can work with. Um, some that feel huge and we can't work with, like larger systems and structures, sometimes of power and, and domination, and sometimes of beneficence. And this is all a part of the world we live in, right? That we live in this very interconnected world. Well, that's great, but what does God do in this world? How does God relate to this world? Well, again, this is, I don't think of this as a lawmaking God, but rather a God that calls us and lures us and loves us. To what end? I'm glad you asked, because that varies depending on the process theologian you talk to. Um, I'll give you two very common answers to that. One is that God is luring us, is calling us toward experiences that are more complex, that are more intense, that are more harmonious, right? So this is very common idea for those who are thinking about evolution, right? That it seems that the world and God is calling the world toward more and more complexity, more and more intensity, right? So when if you're probably thinking about how animals have evolved or even how people have evolved, right, in a very anthropological sense, um, it seems that there's just more complexity, more intensity, but it still should work together, still should be harmonious. And so that God is kind of calling us toward more intense experiences and yet ones that work. And by harmonious, we mean, so it's not just intense for one person and bad for somebody else or exciting and complex for one person. And it doesn't matter how it is for someone else, but that it sings a song together, that it is harmonious, that there's a kind of sense in which God is calling us toward what is good as a whole, as a community, not just what's good for some individuals versus other individuals. The other way of thinking about um, what God is calling us toward, and this is more my way, is thinking that God has these ideals that God is calling us toward, that God is calling us toward a kind of eschatological vision or ideal vision of what the world could and should be. And that that is characterized by beauty and truth and art and adventure and justice. So this very much holds together with the kind of God I was raised with, where churches should always be involved in making the world a better place, was this sense that God cares about justice, right? That God does not think that there should be vast inequities and disparities around people, around class and gender and race and sexuality, that God does not want people to be oppressed, that God does not want the earth to be oppressed or mistreated, right? That God really does care about justice as well as caring about beauty and that there's art and that we are adventurous and that we try new things and that there can be a sense of peace and harmony and that it's not just what one or two people want or one or two groups want, but that God cares about the common good, what is good for all people, what is good for all of creation, right? And that this is a very important sense of the way in which God is calling us to act in the world and to kind of create as much of heaven on earth as we can. We can't get all of it, no, but as much of heaven on earth, these pockets, these breakthroughs of heaven on earth. 
So if this is who I think God is, if God isn't the lawmaker, right? If God isn't the, you know, the God who would break up with me <laughs> if, if I cheated on God, right? If I committed some sin against God, but rather God is someone who, or something, or a spirit that is deeply within me, right? That is radically incarnate in me, which means it's radically omnipresent, which means that God is always with me, which means that God, I can't shake God, that there's actually nothing in the world I could do to not have God with me because God is in me. And God is a part of who I am and a part of everything that I do. And that's true of everyone, not just me, right? Then I wouldn't have a God that would break up with me if I sinned, right? Rather, I have a God who's like, hey, you're interconnected to other people and to other things. And what you do affects me, yes, but also affects other people. That led me to think a little bit differently about sexuality. And so it led me to think that maybe the things that matter the most about sexuality are how I interact with other people, how what I do or decide affects other people, um, how, right, and of course affects God, but I'll come to that in a minute. But are the decisions that I'm making around my sexuality, how do they affect someone else's sexuality? How does it affect how they're feeling? Um, do I have consent, right? So consent to me is a very important part of sexuality. Like, are we both agreeing to be here? Do we both feel good about this? Is it something we both want to do, whatever the it is, right? Or is it just two people if the three of us decide to do this, right? Is, are we, are, are the four of us, whatever it might be, is this something that we're all consenting to, right? And has all the requirements of consent, right? That you're sober enough to make these decisions, that you are old enough or mature enough to make these decisions. And not only that you can make them, but that you can live with the possible consequences of them, or at least that you'll know how to manage them, right? If you were to encounter whatever the consequences might be, most of which would probably be more emotional than they might be physical, but might also be physical, might also be sexual, might be whatever they might be. Am I equipped right, to manage the to manage the consequences of my decisions? Right? Am I um, partnering with people who I can be in communication with about the consequences of my decisions? Now, some of that consequence might be beauty. It might be pleasure. I might be creating more beauty in the world, which God also gets to experience. I might be creating more pleasure in the small corner of the world, which God also gets to experience, right? Um, but that also means that I need to communicate and there needs to be respect amongst who I'm working with. So when I began to think about sexuality in these categories, it became more important, I guess, about to think about the content of relationships than the form of relationships. It didn't become about how many people are involved. It wasn't a question of what genders are those people. It was even less about what are those people doing, right? Uh, is it about procreation? It's not about procreation. But to, to think more about how are we treating each other? Are we treating each other with the same ideals that God would have, right? Am I treating this person like there is God in this person? Am I treating other people with respect? Am I treating myself with respect? Is there consent? Is there communication? Um, and, you know, and is there a sense, you know, a deep sense that what I am doing does matter to others, not just myself, but these are not individual decisions I'm making, but ones that will have a ripple effect, maybe not a huge ripple effect, but a ripple effect even within the small little world or sexual world or community that I'm in.
Now, the challenge with this is that this is harder. This is a lot harder to talk about and to teach about than to say, don't do it until you're married because God says so. And meant it might be marriage, it might not be marriage. It might be a committed situation. It might not be a committed situation, right? What is it? What does the situation look like? That there wasn't a rule to follow or not follow, that everything was really contextual and that I had to think about my deepest values and if those values aligned with what I think God's values are, if I was treating other people like they're as God-infused, as I like to think I'm God-infused, am I treating myself as if I am God-infused, right, with, with respect? Are we all consenting? Have we talked ahead of time about what's going to happen? If this, then that. What might this mean, right? And so because what I think about God and how God relates to the world and humanity changed, what I think about my own sexuality or other people's for that matter also changed. Right? It couldn't just be a matter of there's a rule, there's a law, and this is how it works in every situation. It might be different. I also came to understand, right, of course, that sexual interaction, sexual norms, things about marriage and relationships are cultural. Right? That what might be true in the culture in which I grew up might be very different, right? For some, marriage is about love. <laughs> For in others, marriage is a kind of social and familial institution. Um, and love is secondary, right? And should we should we hold the same standards in all of those just because we are excited about Jesus and what we consider to be the good news of of Jesus that Jesus comes to tell us about God and the God's relationship with the world? Does that actually say everything about how we interact with people? It should be the same everywhere. So for those reasons, I wanted to share, I guess this is my contribution to the interesting conversation about sexuality, that what we think about God and who God is and how God relates to the world matters for how we understand our own sexual activity, what that means, uh, what's authoritative, and what the most important principles are that govern our decision-making around us. Thank you. Yep. My hand is hurting from writing notes. <laughs> My head is hurting from thinking. <laughs> I want to be like her when I grow up, man. Yeah, impressive. She's so cool. I'm not sure if we should start at the end where she talks about where she ends up, go to the middle where she gets to her chain, new vision of God or start at the beginning. What, what do you what do you think? Um, maybe, um, you know, you, you introduced open and relational a little bit last night and she was using process language, open and relational stuff. I wonder if you should do a quick. Yeah, well, uh, I can do that pretty quickly. I think she said that as a process person, and I think this is, well, first of all, I should say, I think of open relational as a category or umbrella under which there's lots of varieties and process theology is one of those varieties, probably the best known and one of the most influential. And this way of thinking says that who we are is shaped by the past, by our decisions in light of the past and in light of what's possible. And it says God is thoroughly involved in it all, the past, 
helping us, empowering, calling us in the present, and also presenting possibilities for what could be. So when she says God is in us and in all creation and God is incarnate everywhere, she's not saying you and I are God as if, you know, there's an equal sign there. She's saying that God informs our experience to such a deep level that God is always constantly influencing us at all times. And I love the way she talks about that means God, we can never break up with God. God never breaks up with us when we screw up because God is always present in constituting uh, who we are moment by moment. So that's kind of the the basic idea of uh, the process stuff she presents. She also talks about how in a process vision, not only do you affect me and I affect you, and in that sense we're interrelated, but we affect God and God affects us. In that sense, we're interrelated with God as well. And um, that's, I think, a pretty key issue there. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think... On that particular issue, maybe a really controversial point she has there that maybe we can dive into since we we like to go for the controversies, or at least I do. I won't put it on your shoulders. (laughs) The idea that there might be new experiences Mm -hmm. that are different from the past. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that in light of what she said earlier about how sexual intercourse for her was always tied up in questions about whether or not that would result in pregnancy Mm. and could she handle that if she was a young mother how would that affect her career etc and then i was thinking about how the kinds of sexual decisions we make today are so different from what people made 200 years ago because we have uh access to all kinds of birth control uh, we we know certain things that sexually that weren't known in the past. Uh, we have expectations about careers for women that people didn't have so much 200 years ago. Um, and, and, you know, there's a whole different culture around how kids are going to be raised. You know, my kids, not long after they came into this world, they were in daycare because my wife wanted to work and I supported her of that, et cetera. That, you wouldn't send kids to daycare 200 years ago. I say all this to say that we all realize our current situation is different from the past. And that means we have new choices, new responsibilities, mm-hmm. new possibilities in the present that people in the past just didn't have in the same way. And that, it seems to me at least, is inevitably going to shape our sexual decisions, whether or not, you know, they're just kind of within a traditional marriage situation or something outside of that. It's just going to be different because the world is different today. I've talked too long, Jonathan. What do you, your thoughts on that? No, that's so true. Yeah. Things are changing. Nothing ever really stays the same. We live in a dynamic, non-static universe um, infused with this dynamic, non-static deity, this love. And so it's so true. So our experiences on all different levels are different than they used to be. The way we process them mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, I don't know how it could be different. Mm. And it's okay to say that because love is always with us 
And like she said, you can't break up. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go to get away from God? It <laughs> you know, doesn't even make sense. So one thing I thought of while you're talking about that was to attach some of that thinking back to uh, LGBTQ stuff or homosexuality stuff is this whole idea that in the Bible you even see you see process and change in a lot of different areas. But uh, take for example the concept of the eunuch, where you know in Leviticus the eunuch is clearly out, but um, Isaiah by the time Isaiah comes along he has a vision that the eunuch is going to be accepted you know into God's plan. Jesus comes along and says this enigmatic phrase. Hey, some are born this way, and some are made this way. And it's like, I think it's Matthew. It's like Matthew doesn't even know what yeah. to do with it. He just basically keeps <laughs> it alone. You know? Whoever can accept this, accept it. Whoever can't, can't. Philip, thank God, accepts it, meets the eunuch, it meets the eunuch and then uh, uh, the eunuch becomes a believer and, and, and quite likely the first uh, missionary to the continent of Africa. Did we talk about this last night, or was this... No, but then oh. I'm I'm just saying, go for it. Yes, this is really important stuff. Well, that that exemplifies this whole process, this whole change, this whole way of thinking, even in terms of the Bible. And by the way, what's what's important is when you get outside of the um, really conservative fundamentalist um, purity culture kind of a thought process. The word eunuch takes on a very uh, general meaning, and it can be applied to basically a variety of different kind of a sexual orientations, but very much in the ancient Near East, uh, it could have absolutely and probably was used to talk about people who were gay. So that was just a, that was just a common thing. Of course, in my upbringing, I would have never heard that, uh, yeah. but that's what I'm learning now. And so anyhow, you see that, that arc, you know, that movement of that whole thing. And um, it goes to illustrate some of what you were talking about. How could our experiences not be, uh, different. Yeah. Yeah. I was also thinking that I was kind of tying in my head some of the strands we've had moving through this process because mm -hmm. it was James who in the very first video brought up that Pauline passage that says everything is permitted but not everything is beneficial. Mm -hmm. And then as I was thinking about Monica speaking I thought, okay, maybe this, that's the new third way here between purity culture, like Linda Kay talked about, promiscuity culture, whatever that looks like, but you know, basically do whoever you want to do. Right. And this third, this middle ground, which is, okay, what's beneficial? Mm. What's going to be good for me, for others, for the common good? Uh, if you're someone who has children, is, is my sexual activity going to be beneficial for them? What kind of what kind of uh, consequences are involved here? What about culture and society? And then, I mean, that seems to me to be this possible way to bring together what seems to be good in this diversity of sexual uh, experiences, genders, identities, genitalia, all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. uh, in such a way that gives us a path that avoids the two extremes. Mm -hmm. But... I think Monica's also right. That's a harder way to live. <laughs> it's harder to know for sure what's going to be really good for everyone involved or promote the common good. And so uh, while I agree with her, it doesn't seem to be 
super easy to figure out and live out. Mm-hmm. But again, uh, that's not to say it's super easy to live out the other way too. Good point. Good point. Yes. Because of all of the inherent problems with deciding that you know exactly what the boundaries are and what truth is for you is truth for everyone. Yes. It's messy. Uh, back to what Elaine said, the, the impropriety, the immodesty of love, messy. Yeah. Yep. I, don't, I, I, I recently listened to a woman who wrote a really fascinating book on her own sexual, um, what's the right word? Uh, I'll call it her sexual development. Um, in which she talked about how she went kind of from a, a kind of a purity culture approach to things to being a very promiscuous person and deciding that wasn't healthy. And I remember thinking as a kid that, you know, I heard all the stories about people who were promiscuous and said, you know, that just ruined my life. And the only other option seemed to be the, the purity thing. Mm-hmm. And, but what we're saying here is that, uh, you know, again, there's a, another way here. It might not be as simple to figure out but those other two ways aren't simple either as you put it right also i think it's worth noting that both you and i have children who are grown it's a little might be a little different might be a little bit easier for me to talk about less boundaries now that my kids i don't want to admit that but that might be true yeah i tell you we struggled with that my wife and i how to you know, we we didn't want our girls to be promiscuous, but also we didn't want to have these. We didn't have the purity culture problems that we could see, um, and it was not easy. Yeah, um, it's still not easy. Sure. One of the most difficult things I had to wrestle with is that my one of my daughter's best friends. Uh, Transition from being female to male, mm-hmm. and this was a friend in which my daughter stayed the night with all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was like a weird thing. Like I'm now okay with my daughter spending the night with a boy. <laughs> um, you know, like what's going on there? You know, um, boy, I had to work through that. I'm happy to say I didn't say anything. I'm feel embarrassed about now, but. Um, I, I want to be quickly honest to say I had weird feelings inside trying to figure out what this was about. And I talked to my daughter about it in, in non-threatening ways. Um, and that's only just one small example of the complexity <laughs> of sexual relationships, sexualities, gender questions. It's just complex. Yeah. And obviously children aren't, um, you know, they're not capable of processing in such abstract ways as adults are. Right. Um, but I think, because I, I deal with this a lot or interact with a lot of young parents. Um, I want to say something like just a reminder that probably most parents know anyhow how much our kids pick up on our anxieties about it. And I think the, the very best thing we can give our young people probably think about this i think this is true the very best thing is a a sense of peace and grace about who we are with god and um the reality that we're not going to be separated from god god's not going to break up with us and when we understand that it it gives us such um a security you know uh like this really sweet cool position 
friendship we have with God such that maybe we can give that away to our kids. So even when we're talking about things that are challenging and tough, you know, most kids will be able to pick up on those deeper anxieties or that deeper level of peace. And so, yeah, but that's, that's challenging. Uh, Roxana asks about where that's at in the Bible, and Johan's already answered. Thanks, bud. Matthew 19. Actually, Johan sent that to us, not to everybody. So. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so where, where Jesus talks about the eunuch is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. And he says, some are born this way, and some are made this way, and whoever can accept it, accept it. I love that yeah. one. It's like, deal with it, man. Yeah. Another really powerful verse is... Uh, it, it's been reinterpreted in my mind is the one where Paul says in Christ, there's neither slave nor Greek or free Greek nor Jew nor Greek or male nor female, hmm. which I always thought of, okay, he's saying that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl, but another way you could understand that is look, gender isn't the issue here. And so if one doesn't identify with a cisgender perspective, uh, or a traditional, I'll just use more understandable, uh, the traditional views of male and female, that's not the primary issue for the Apostle Paul. Um, yeah, it kind of expands my vision of what's possible. Well, also, we are made in the image and likeness of God. Um, we don't tend to think of that sexual gender-wise, but male and female, we're made in the image of God. We. We're, we're pretty sure male is neither, it's not a guy or a girl. And so is there some androgynous peace that exists within God himself, herself, itself? We're made in that image, the fluidity of all of that. Yep. Um, yeah, I wrote down a couple of things. You, you kind of, kind of addressed it. Um, when she said, I don't know if you want to talk a, a bit about pantheism versus panentheism. Because mm. when she said God is in all of us, you know, that, that's certainly a question that we get a lot. And you yeah. kind of already answered that, but what's the difference between pantheism and panentheism? Yeah, um, pantheism says everything is God. Um, so that would be that, you know, not only you and I, God, Jonathan, but the computers we're looking at right at the moment and our dogs and everything in the world is God, literally. Um, and most people across religious traditions have wanted to shy away from that view, especially Christians, because they've wanted to say, well, for one thing, maybe God is morally perfect or perfectly loving. I, I definitely want to say that. Mm -hmm. And uh, no offense, Jonathan, but I don't think you are. And neither am I. <laughs> I've done some stupid things, some sinful things. I haven't loved perfectly in life. Um, so uh, we've wanted to make a distinction between the creator and creatures. But in doing so, so often we've pictured God as sort of way out there or the God who like intervenes occasionally and fiddles with things or, you know, God isn't with me unless I have that great camp experience and the the spiritual high, or, you know, God isn't around unless I'm walking in the woods, or whatever. Um, whereas panentheism, this between pantheism and we'll call it a traditional view, panentheism says that God is literally in everything in the sense that 
God influences all creation and all creation influences God. Um, who we are, and to quote the Apostle Paul, in God we live and move and have our being. Mm. Yeah, panentheism has helped me a lot. And it gives you entryways into thinking about some of the stuff we've been talking about in terms of God being affected by us. So he influences, God influences us, we influence God. Yeah, yep. And for me, and, I, and Monica, I think, says this really well, I take in, I, I think about this when I think about my own sexual behavior, uh, my sexual expressions. Um, not only am I being respectful for myself, not only am I asking questions about whether or not this is helpful for others, but if God is actually affected by what I do, then how does this affect God? Now, answering those questions well is hard. <laughs> let me say, let me be obvious about that. Like, <laughs> um, but I think it does provide a framework that avoids, <laughs> back to those extremes, avoids anything goes or the kind of purity culture. Yeah. Challenging. Yeah. I have some questions about God and gender, which could go a lot of different ways. Yeah. Uh, one of the persons asked, how, if, if God doesn't have a gender, then why do we talk about being God made in his image? Emphasis on the masculine there. It is true that in Scripture, God is more often referred to in masculine ways, but there are some feminine references to God in the Bible. Some of them are not obvious because they're in the ancient languages and they're not translated uh, as feminine kinds of images. Um, for instance, one of the words for the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is Shekinah, which is a feminine word. Uh, and then there's some words for God that are gender neutral, uh, in the New Testament, the word for spirit is gender neutral. So, um, yeah, a lot of people talk about God as him. I think most people don't think God has a penis. Um, the exception, interestingly, are, are Mormon or LDS friends. They really do think God has a penis. But most Christians have not, most Jews have not thought that. And in fact, uh, the kind of standard view amongst at least scholars is that God is bodiless, incorporeal, mm -hmm. so doesn't have genitalia at all. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we ought maybe to use masculine language for God is to talk about some kind of intimate relationship. And if that's true for masculine language, it can be true for feminine language or gender neutral. Grandparent works as well as lover. Mm -hmm. Well, and there are, are also other terms that to modern-day American Christians, we just assume are masculine. They may not be. Um, right. A term like El Shaddai, yes. uh, which I think probably in its most literal form, I'm not a, uh, we do have some Hebrew people, I think, with us tonight. I'm not a Hebrew guy, but in its most literal form probably means breasted one. But as the as Christianity develops over the centuries, there's such uh, patriarchy, there's such top-down hierarchy, power only thought of as this dominant, and then, of course, the male is dominant at the top of the hierarchy. So all of that filters out into the way we process things now. So there's a lot of masculine 
references to God in the Bible, but there's a lot of feminine, and there's a lot that we probably never even uh, would have imagined, um, but it's kind of been drilled out of us, unfortunately, for a lot of probably not super healthy reasons. Yeah, yeah. Which plays into the other stuff that Linda was talking about and, and other, others about how women, you know, view themselves and how men have viewed women and how culture view women and, and uh, all those kinds of things. Yeah, that cultural issue, Monica talks about at the end, and, and one of our uh, persons and the members of the chat brings up the question of uh, how we think about sex and marriage in particular cultures. You know, I have a, one of my good friends from college is from an Indian culture. By Indian, I mean from India. And, um, you know, her parents decided who she was going to marry. Um, to say that she loved her husband before they got married would be <laughs> stretching the word, the meaning of the word love. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know if she loves him now, but um, it, that definitely wasn't the basis for their coming together in marriage. Yeah, the cultural piece is so incredibly important. Um, another a related cultural thing, but like having been to Haiti so many times, I didn't even realize it was happening until after the fact. But in Haiti, uh, two two gentlemen, two men, can be in a community and hold hands. That's pretty normal, and even more so when you're going into a meeting. So I've gone into lots of quote unquote meetings where my Haitian friend has grabbed my hand, and uh, I kind of really didn't even know what was going on until the last. I can't. It's come up recently in the last year or two. But talk about the fluidity of how we you know, process sexuality in our relationships and those kinds of things. It changes culture to culture. Um, and from age to age, everything is in process. Yep. What's yeah. considered modesty in Arabia is far different than Brazil. Yeah. And far different from New York than Kentucky than Idaho. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. There's so much good stuff here. I wish we could go on all night. Um, does anyone else feel like they agree with, understand this new responsible sexual ethic, but it's just too stressful to act on because your community around you holds to the old one man, woman within marriage standard? Mm. What a fantastic question. What is a great question. Um, I don't, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. Yeah, I think that good question gets at this question of uh, what Monica talks about, new experiences yeah. and asking the question of the common good. You know, sometimes it's not easy to know what really is good for the, for the whole, you right. know, good for the community. Um, right. And all, well, and also there's, there's not one perfect answer there's a variety of common goods right and sometimes the best of the good in one situation doesn't apply in another situation right right but sometimes literally what i hear what i think that i think is that literally i should maybe i shouldn't say literally but what i think is happening is that God's offering the best in that situation, but sometimes it's not even that great of a answer. Yeah. But it's all he or she can work with in that situation. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to say yes. I do feel the stress of that, um, and and it might be a tension to be managed rather than a problem to be fixed. You know, you and I are both in our fifties. That means you probably like me remember American culture when Will and Grace was the big TV show, mm-hmm. and it showed gay men. Uh, oftentimes in very stereotypical gay um, um, attitudes and behaviors, but um, in a way that really rocked a lot of people in American culture. And people said, we're not ready for this, Mm -hmm. which is another kind of way of saying, this is not going to help the common good. Mm. (laughs) We're not ready for this. But I tell you, if that show hadn't been on, then it's, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say it that strongly. That seemed like a step in the direction of the kind of freedom that so many LGBTQ people today are thankful for, even though it's not as much as they would want. And what felt to many people like just going too far 25 years ago or however long ago when that show came on, now seems like a really important step from my perspective, putting my cards on the table, a really important step toward a culture that is more open to what this person in the chat says uh, allows for less stress to live out the kinds of um, desires, behaviors, commitments, orientation that feels right. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. Some people are invited to step into that and kind of be the forefront of this change and uh, have to accept the brunt of it that then later winds up being really good but challenging yeah well this has been a lot of fun man Um, wow time has slipped away (laughs) that's the way it works that's the way it works uh you kind of you kind of already said your little thought about how you weaved the four together but um i'm i've been weaving them together too in the sense that you know, James talked about how Jesus occupied the space of the outcast person. Person, So we no longer have to do that. And historically, that's what we've done with the, the uh, well, what he calls the non-pathological variant, sexually speaking. <laughs> They've been the outcast. But Jesus has, has, has occupied that space. We don't have to do it anymore. And then Elaine talked about the immodesty of love. And um, I love that phrase and how messy it is. And um, Linda talked about the commitment to define sexuality for oneself. She talked about a lot of things. But then, um, you know, Monica wound up bringing it together with the interconnected, interrelated notion of God, notion of love. And so all of these things helps me a lot and gives me, gives me more stuff to think about. Yeah, you know, it's been kind of uh, not truly uh, honest to say that you and I are co-hosts of this. The truth is you've done 90 plus percent of the work to make it happen. It's been great for me and so many people are already saying in the chat how much they've enjoyed it. So I just want to publicly say thank you for putting in all the time and effort and energy to make this happen, Jonathan. You are welcome, my man. Thank you very much. 
Thanks to everyone for uh, participating. I'll follow up with some stuff. I got to figure out the best way to get you the videos. I may um, host them online and give you access codes, or I may send the videos. I'll figure that out by the beginning of next week. Um, if you don't hear from me for 